if you stick to the consensus, you lose the ability to learn more about what's happening. My guest today is Sharon Camp. I am a retired high school teacher. I had a degree, Bachelor of Science degree from the University of Georgia in geology. I decided to go into chemistry. And so I got a, a, a doctorate in analytical chemistry from Georgia Tech and then was in industry and also worked for the EPA and the government for a few years. So my presentation is going to be on the state of science education in the United States um, and what the CO2 coalition is doing about it, because we have a group of scientists who are very concerned about not necessarily what is being taught, which we also aren't particularly crazy about, but what is not being taught in public schools. So I wanted to go over exactly what it is that we are concerned about and what we are trying to do about it. So school choice in America, I wanted to um, do a quick review of that because as people are becoming more and more dissatisfied with the public school system, it's becoming more and more of a political issue. So you're starting to see more and more states that will implement some form of school choice, whereas some states will put in just one or two things and other states will put in lots and lots of different choices. So you see here on the screen statistics, um, the parts that are considered to be school choice would include public charter schools, which is what I taught at, uh, permitting magnet schools. We also had that uh, in Metro Atlanta where I came from, and they permit homeschooling among other things. So these are probably one of the biggest things that people are concerned about. Um, you know, the school vouchers aren't necessarily as big. These are the big things that every state in the country has done. Uh, and so we're gonna look specifically at the homeschooling. Um, and for reasons that I'll talk about later in the slideshow, the CO2 Coalition is really right now spending most of their time targeting homeschooling parents. And a lot of that has to do with animosity and pushback from the public schools. And the reason a lot of the homeschoolers have left the public school system is because they don't like what they're seeing. So they are the ones that are most likely to adopt our education materials. So there's been a huge surge in homeschooling, uh, especially since COVID, when people stayed at home and then they saw what was being taught uh, a lot of parents were particularly unhappy with it and decided at that point, I can't get any satisfaction from my public school. I'm going to pull my kids out. Um, and you're seeing this across the board with all different types of ethnic groups too. So it's not just one small group of people. It's like a little slice of everybody. In the last few years, since 2016, six, there's been a 60% increase in the number of homeschoolers in the country, it has risen from 2.3 million to 3.7 million as of the last, the last count. Um, this is, I've given my source here on the screen or where I got the data from. Um, interestingly enough, most of the school age kids that are homeschooled have to, are at the middle school age. Maybe it's at that point in time where the people, parents feel more comfortable or they're the most dissatisfied with their children's education with the South leading the pack, North Carolina, Florida, and Georgia have the highest number of homeschool students. Well, sorry, I did have one question there. Do you have a sense of what percent of middle school kids are homeschooled in the U.S., roughly? 
Highest homeschooling rate is among students with a grade equivalent of six to eight, and that is 29% of students in grade six to eight are homeschooled. That was in 2019. In 2016, it was 24%, and in 2012, it was 24%. So this is pre-COVID, you know, and I'm sure it's gone up after that because that's when people became the most dissatisfied with uh, public education was okay. after COVID. Um, so why would you homeschool for science education? Because a lot of people are uncomfortable with science. Well, as I mentioned earlier, there are things that the public school is not teaching anymore. And one is the scientific method. And the second thing is critical thinking skills. And you asked me, how do I know this? Well, I do know that 45 out of all 50 states have adopted the next generation science standards as their platform upon which they build all of their education goals. Um, so it, it's kind of a long history when I started teaching. I hate to say this because I give up my age, <laughs> but I started teaching in 1978. There was no statewide learning objectives. Basically, I was handed a book and said, here, teach this. And with zero guidelines, like how far am I supposed to go? In what depth am I supposed to go? Is it like every page of the book, give me some guidance? There was none. Um, and then in the state of Georgia, after the six years when I just gave up and said, I'm done, uh, we had a governor that came in and said, we need to have learning standards for all the students in the state of Georgia. And about that time, all of the states were becoming aware of the fact that they needed standards so that teachers knew what to teach. And theoretically, at the end, you could measure what a student had learned if you knew what had been taught during the year. Um, then after that, well, I was still teaching, I think it was maybe 2016, 2017, the next generation science standards were introduced. And the idea was, oh, well, we'll just have a national set of science standards. So if the kids move from state A to state B, they're going to be in the same place, studying the same thing, and it's going to make transition easier for the students and for the teacher, which sounded great, but that's <laughs> that was the, the goal that they sold it with. Uh, and then you start getting into the next generation science standards, and you realize that there's a lot of stuff missing. And at the time I was teaching chemistry, and I remember sending an email to the whoever it was who was in charge of secondary science education in the state of Georgia and complained. It's like, I teach chemistry, but you don't want them to know anything about acids and bases. Like, everything is acids and bases. How could you not cover this? And his retort was, well, you know, this is set up by all of these people from the National Science Foundation and, and colleges and so on and so forth. And clearly they must know more than you. <laughs> <laughs> which I was very dissatisfied with, to say the least. Um, but because I worked for a public charter school, we covered everything we thought was necessary. So you can say, well, why doesn't every school do that? And the answer is because in, and I can speak clearly for the state of Georgia, is that at the time they introduced this whole new grading system, again, the the was it's going to make it easy for the teacher because 
everybody's doing the same thing. And so you can just, you know, check the box. Yes, I did this. This is what the grade was on the assessment. Boom, you're done. The actuality was that if what you wanted to teach was not included in the grading syllabus, you couldn't teach it because you had no standards and you couldn't evaluate. Like not couldn't, but were not allowed to. So part of being a public charter school in our charter was if we want to beef up our curriculum, we can do that. Uh, and this is one of the reasons why a lot of public charter schools are becoming more and more popular because they don't have to do what all of the other public schools necessarily can do. And of course, if you're a homeschooler, you can you know get as in-depth as you want. Um, so... When you look at the next generation science standards, they don't cover the scientific method. So part of learning the scientific method is understanding that you have these seven steps that start off with, you know, identifying a problem and coming up with a hypothesis and on and on and on, all the way down to drawing a conclusion and giving a presentation on what you've learned. In the next generation science standards, there is no lesson plan that says, Exact, so what next generation science standards, here we go. I should have admitted that sooner. Um, but it doesn't include the scientific method. It emphasizes modeling. So when you get to the scientific method, I mean, to the next generation science standards, and you go into their main page and you scan and you search for the scientific method, nothing comes up. Like there are no lesson plans on the scientific method. What they've done is they've taken down each individual step and they call that a practice. So you can collect data but and draw conclusions, but there's no you know, emphasis on critical thinking in there. There's no emphasis on the scientific method. They don't teach students what this involves. So not every kid goes to college. And I guess you could say, well, that doesn't matter because the kids that go to college and want to major in science will learn that in college. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, is that the scientific method is used by everybody. Uh, I remember we had trouble with our car and the air conditioning kept doing floozy things. And so we took it into the mechanic and the mechanic says, well, the floozy things could be caused by A or B. And so we're going to come up with this test. It's going to test whether it's A or B. And then we're going to draw our conclusions from there. And then once we figured it out, we're going to fix the problem. It's like at the scientific method right there in the mechanic and then, you know, in the dealership. So it's, it is a method that has been applied over and over and over again and is multidisciplinary. And I think that it's the one thing, the one subject you would expect to find it in is science. It's not there. Okay. And another thing that's missing is critical thinking skills. I did want to point out when I put in to this search, the keyword search, the term climate change, you can imagine dozens and dozens of lessons came up. Um, but what I wanted to read to you was specifically directly from their student learning goals. Students who demonstrate understanding can analyze geoscience data and the results from global climate models to make 
an evidence-based forecast of the current rate of global or regional climate change and associated future impacts on Earth systems. And it says, though the magnitude of human impacts are greater than they have ever been, so too are human abilities to model, predict, manage current future impacts. So I had to laugh at this one particularly because if anybody keeps up with the weather report, you know that their weather models are lucky if they can predict accurately three or four days into the future. Um, the fact that they wanted to use data to support a model and they say, we're going to get results from the climate models, but the climate models themselves have an enormous amount of error and problems with them, which is beyond the scope of this lecture. But the point is, is that it is already assumed that the models are right and that they give you valid information and that not only can you take that information and make predictions, which by the way, none of the models have been able to accurately do, and then come up with possible ways to change the impact certainly has a lot of unrealistic um, requirements and expectations. And there's a certain amount of arrogance involved with the thought that we humans can affect any major natural event on the planet, you know, including volcanoes and hurricanes and tornadoes, man, if we could stop them, <laughs> that would be amazing. But basically we can't because we don't have the energy or the power. Nobody really truly understands the power of mother nature, I don't think. So well, when you take a look at this idea where there's not really a whole lot of critical thinking, it's not evaluate the quality of your data. Um, it is get data and make it fit this model. Then we go to the next problem that you see with current public education. And unfortunately, this is not only in the lower levels, but in the upper levels as well, which is essentially, and you can see on the slide, the goal of science is the achievement of consensus. So um, this particular article, and I have it referenced here, was just a bit shocking because this was supposedly a professor emeritus of education at Stanford, who according to his bio has a bachelor's degree in physics, which indicates to me that he at least has a little bit of science training and should also realize that if you're part of the scientific community that is doing any kind of research and you, you question what is the, what he would call the consensus, let's just say the the prevailing or the, the most widely accepted theory or hypothesis, um, you understand that your argument wins on the merit of your data and what facts you can bring to the table to prove your point of view. And so saying that the goal of science is the achievement of consensus and not the achievement of a true explanation of what is happening in nature is complete and total indoctrination, which fits, again, right into this um, whole idea that climate change can't be questioned 
and climate change is a thing, but we're going to ignore all these other things that you need to learn to be able to evaluate what it is that they're trying to teach you. So he doesn't say anything about why it's important to understand the scientific method, to apply it correctly, to design an experiment that tests your hypothesis, which is a whole lot harder than it sounds, and then come up with an accurate analysis of data, which includes things like I was looking at error, looking at systematic error, looking at the error of, from the experimenter, you know, what kind of error is he or she putting in? A lot of times that error has to do with pre-prejudice. You know, this is the answer I expect, so I'm going to throw out all the data that I don't like. Um, none of that is addressed. It's just, you know, we're going to, we got to teach the consensus. That's what's important. So when you go back in time through history, you can see that there is a whole lot of consensus for things that eventually were tossed out. Uh, one of them is the theory of miasmus, which says that diseases carry through bad air which explained, I guess, pretty adequately for the early 1900s, how you could get disease that was airborne, like the 1912, no, I'm sorry, it was a 1918 flu virus that killed a significant portion of all of the people on the planet. And you see them wearing masks because they aren't trying to keep bacteria or germs off their faces because they didn't believe that then. It was to help protect them from the bad air. And so it wasn't until there was proof that disease is carried through germs, which explained how you can get disease from contaminated water and how you can get disease from contaminated food, which is not explained by the bad air theory, that they finally switched from this failed hypothesis or theory to one that better explained observations, which was the germ theory. And it's still called a theory. Um, let me try to clarify that for everybody too, because the scientific term for theory is not the same thing as a colloquial usage of the word theory. For scientists, a query, a question that needs to be answered is a hypothesis. And if you believe that you have the answer to this question, you state it in a hypothesis. In vernacular, they replace the word hypothesis with the word theory. So you would say, well, you know, I see this happening over here. And my theory is that there's no good coming on over there. And that means I'm guessing, but I don't really know. But in science, the word theory means that there is substantial experimental data and evidence to support a general explanation of many phenomena that are all tied together in one, one package. So an example of that, and I'm going to, because of my geology background, I'm going to speak specifically about plate tectonics. So originally, the idea for plate tectonics was introduced in the late 1800s, and it was done very, very easily. Look at the continents, they fit together like a puzzle piece. And the scientist, Fegner, uh, introduced it in a meeting of geologists, at which point he was promptly laughed out of the forum. Um, and he worked until he died to try to collect enough evidence, but he really didn't have enough 
technology to help improve it. So it died for years and years. And then in the late 50s and early 60s, it was picked back up again. But at this point in time, they had enough technology to try to find answers to questions. And so they were able to measure depths of earthquakes. They were able to discover the ring of fire. They were able to discover that the ocean floor is being created in certain spots and, and being destroyed in other spots. Um, they were able to date rocks, especially along these spreading ocean ridges to prove that they were spreading. And they just got more and more and more data to support the idea that the continents were at one time connected together and then since then have spread apart. And so in the 40, 50 years, since it was went, has gone, since scientists had gone back and learned more about plate tectonics, it has opened up this huge area of understanding in the field of geology. So if you stick to the consensus, you lose the ability to learn more about what's happening. And, and the whole idea behind your data has to support it is that the, the flip side is at any point in time, you come up with something that disproves what you're saying, it's no longer valid. So we go back to the miasmus thing again. And the answer was, well, you know, this new idea of germs explains foodborne illness, yours does not. You know, when they, when they finally got to the point where they could actually observe bacteria and watch them grow, it's like that was sand. It was total dust at that point. So by canceling any kind of opinion that does not support the consensus means that you are immediately throwing out any possibility of learning more and growing in your understanding and knowledge. So the growing and understanding and knowledge is the goal of science. It's not the achievement of consensus. So how has this permeated our public schools? Well, this is where we, we being the CO2 coalition challenged the National Science Teachers Association. They have multiple conventions, but usually just one big one that happens every single year. And all these science vendors show up and you have a lot of people that come in and speak about different parts of science and maybe they share experiments that have worked in their class and so on and so forth. It's a big deal. Teachers come from all over the country to attend the National Science Teachers Association I mean, um, convention. So this past March, they had a big convention and we decided that we would go. Um, and the biggest part problem that we have with the National Science Teachers Association is their position statement on climate change. So if you read what I have here on the slide, we start off with no scientific controversy exists, but you know right there that they don't know what they're talking about. Because in science, I don't care what it is, there's always a controversy, always. And the person who presents the best data and the best argument wins the controversy. And it could be something really, really small, or it could be something very, very major, but there's always controversy. So the fact that they're saying, you can't question anything about climate change, we're going to say it is the honest truth that anybody, anybody who dares to challenge it couldn't possibly be doing it for scientific reasons because they've got data that shows that it's nonsense. 
they're doing it because of political reasons or economic reasons or social reasons, which of course our retort is that's exactly why you won't let any controversy. There are too many people making money off of this stuff, right? Um, and then the other thing, debates and false equivalence arguments are not demonstrably effective science teaching methods, which again means no debate. So you're going to learn this the way I teach it, and there's not going to be any debate. There's debate in history. <laughs> there's debate in English. There's debate in everything. The why science is excluded from this is preposterous. Uh, and then we go, because the controversies come from all of these people have something else to gain and not from the scientific community. And the only reason for that is because they are squelching people from the scientific community who are saying, you don't know what you're talking about. Um, and then finally, the students have to distinguish between opinions and evidence, debate, and scientific denial, which was the part that got me the most worked up. Just because you disagree with something doesn't mean you're in denial. It means you're thinking, right? So all of these steps basically are one, just exactly what this guy said. We're going to promote this in sense, the consensus. There is no scientific method, and how dare you think critically? Because if you do think critically, clearly you're in denial. So this is, in a core, the big problem with science education in our country today. So I mentioned that we, meaning the CO2 Coalition, went to the NSTA, and uh, we were we were a little bit gutsy. Uh, we had some very, very fun educational materials that I'm gonna share with you later in the presentation that we took. I wrote lesson plans for all of them because I understand all of the nonsense that if, if anybody, maybe a charter school or, or anybody needed lesson plans, uh, I'd have all of everything that they may or may not need included in the lesson plan. And then we have these books and videos that cover basic science. Um, but, and we were fine until we started handing out uh, in large quantities, the document that we have that challenges the NSTA's position on climate change. And the only reason that we were distributing that almost exclusively was that we had run out of all of our other materials. In fact, we had just made a phone call back to headquarters saying, you know, can you like extra speed, send us these things from Virginia down to Atlanta because we, we've given everything away. Uh, but then at that point in time, we caught the attention of, of all of those people who uh, follow the NSTA's guidelines on uh, climate change, including people who were ahead of the NSTA themselves. And they came down and said, quit handing out your materials or leave. And so we said, uh, we'll leave. <laughs> we're not going to quit handing anything out. So um, there's a picture of us and we're all smiling because we managed to get our materials and some of our documents out to a lot of people before they discovered us, told us to leave. Um, so that was, that was our big day of excitement. Okay. So what is the CO2 Coalition and why do we care so much about science education? The CO2 Coalition is growing. It started in 2015 as a nonpartisan education foundation. Uh, and we have 
big name people mostly started with physicists and um, meteorologists that started up the coalition. Um, but it, its main purpose is to try to stop all of the alarmism that is continuing with the global warming um, consensus. And its purpose is to try to teach people that carbon dioxide is a beneficial gas. So a lot of the schools are teaching the students that carbon dioxide is a toxic pollutant, which they neglect to tell you that you exhale with every breath. And oh, by the way, plants have to have it to perform photosynthesis to provide oxygen and food for us and hold my beer because if carbon dioxide is toxic, then I shouldn't be drinking beer, right? So it seeks to help people understand exactly what CO2 is, why it's necessary for life on the planet, and why it's not a toxic, poisonous gas. And also it addresses a lot of the scientific policy issues too. So if you go to their website, they've got, excuse me, they've got a blog, they have all kinds of documents, they have all kinds of white papers, all of it dismissing a lot of the the false information that you get out there. So the two the CO2 coalition members, 146 members, and we're not just scientists, we're mostly scientists, but you also have people in there that are policymakers, uh, economists, we have engineers that are involved in there, we have computer scientists, we have people that are energy experts, all of whom see um, what is going on and, and are very upset about how education is occurring in the country and how this narrative seems to be getting pushed further and further along to uh, complete insanity. Uh, William Happer, Patrick Moore, who was with um, Greenpeace, uh, Nobel laureate, John Clauser. We also have Richard Lenzen, high-powered people from MIT um, that are all talking about how this is a problem and they're all members of the CO2 coalition. So uh, their website is co2coalition.org. The CO2 Learning Center is what I'm, in addition to being part of the CO2 Coalition, I am also a member of the CO2 Learning Center. So they formed this in 2019 because there were people on the CO2 Coalition that were extremely worried about science education and how CO2 is being demonized in the public schools. And so our goals are to provide information on how it's important, uh, development of critical thinking skills, and useful science education materials for the students and the educators. So we have books and videos that all kind of follow that mission statement. Our team includes people that have backgrounds in physics, chemistry, geology. Uh, one of them is an MD. One of them is an economist. Uh, and most of them hold advanced degrees in uh, science. And our goal is to promote uh, scientific thought. So it's this cute little picture here, which I love, um, is that the people who are primarily responsible for the education materials. So in the back, you have Payne Kilborn who writes the videos. And then if you go clockwise, that's me with the lesson plans. And then below me is 
is Greg Wright's son, who's head of the CO2 coalition, and his character in the books is Mr. Fish. So that's the idea with the fish there. The guy in the center is Gordon Folks, and he writes the stories. Then we've got Rafa Nesmanento, sorry, Rafa, who is a um, high-powered chemist who is Brazilian and acts as a go-between and a translator with our Brazilian artist who does all of our artwork. And then at the uh, 11 o'clock sign is Angela, who is showing, throwing, doubling everything because she's our marketing director and she literally is involved in every single project that we have. Um, and she helped me with the cleaning up my PowerPoint. So thank you for that, Angela. The materials that we have available are books and videos. And we have a lot of projects that are already in the works, but there are things that are already available on the CO2 Learning Center website. Um, all of our materials are illustrated by uh, Tiago Hellinger, who does the illustrations in a style that seems to be very, very appealing to children. And in fact, we were at a homeschool convention in an, a homeschool convention in Atlanta in July, I think it was. And it was funny because we had TVs set up with our, with our videos just scrolling through and we would have three or four kids that would just sit down on the floor and watch the videos while their parents were looking at the education materials. So that indicated to us that our product at least seems to be visually appealing to children, which is like a big thing. Um, so if you'll allow me, I wanted to go over each one of our materials one at a time. The books are available on Amazon and you can go onto our website and order them through our website and they're not expensive. I, I don't remember what it is. It's like maybe, oh, I should look this up. Maybe $4 a piece or less, not much. And they are uh, small illustrated books that are about the size of a, a regular piece of notebook paper. Um, so the very first one, Once Upon a Time, A True Story, The Miracle Molecule, Carbon Dioxide, is where our characters, who are pictured on the cover here, which is Mr. Gordon, who has the beard, and then we have the three little girls and their dogs. They actually live in real life next to Gordon on a tree farm in Oregon. And they're real little girls with these real names, and they really have all these animals, and all these animals really have the names that they have in the book. So it's all based on this one genuine family. And Mr. Gordon is the scientist next door. So they come over with questions and he answers their questions. So the first question, of course, is what is carbon dioxide? I hear about it in school. And he goes on to explain what it is and how it's necessary and what we would look like without carbon dioxide, which is essentially envision the planet Mars and, and you've got it. Um, and so this explains why carbon dioxide is necessary for plants. And then the second one is Simon, the solar powered cat, which everybody likes because Simon is such a cute character. And Simon gets his, his energy from his food and his food is probably chicken who got its energy from a plant who got its energy from the sun. So Simon is indirectly powered by the sun. And so we go over this whole process with the kids in a very simple way and talk about photosynthesis and food storage and so on and so forth. 
and we, using Simon as our main character. Then the third one that we've got in the series is called The Magic Mirror, which has to do with how the earth recycles every single thing that's on it. We're a closed system. We don't lose matter. We don't gain matter significantly. So everything that's on the planet is recycled. And we talk about that in this particular book and how critical carbon dioxide is to that whole recycling process because the plants need carbon dioxide. So when the then organisms, including animals and bacteria and fungi and everything that eats something else and breaks it down, releases carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, which the plants then absorb and make food out of, to start the whole process again. So this is what we cover in The Magic Mirror. We also have two more books that are coming soon. One is The Big Bad Wolf, which is about how the great Pyrenees there is terrified that it's gonna get too hot and he's not gonna be able to uh, survive. So he goes to Mr. Gordon and Mr. Gordon explains why that's probably not gonna happen and all of the different things that go into climate. Uh, so this was a very challenging lesson plan for me to write because contrary to popular belief, <laughs> there are many, many, many things that go into climate, including you know your latitude, depending on whether you're on a mountain, next to a mountain, behind a mountain, uh, it, you know, ocean currents affect your climate and it just goes on and on and on. So. I had to go into detail about that. And then the last book is The Mystery of the Night Raiders, which is our book on the scientific method where the little girls are presented with a question and then Mr. Gordon teaches them how to use a scientific method with logical thinking to come up with the correct answer to their question. So those will be coming soon. Uh, the videos, we have five videos. We're in the process of posting all of them, but they all are made and I've done lesson plans for all of them. These are simple, but not as simple as the books. They're a little more complicated, um, but still adequate for, I would say, probably kids in the late elementary school, definitely middle school. These are all free and available online. Um, and the first one is Gases in the Air that teaches about what all the major components are of the air, pointing out that carbon dioxide is 0.04% of the gases in the air. So the major ones are nitrogen and oxygen. And then it talks about photosynthesis and how it is, it is um, necessary or responsible for all of the different gases in the air. Um, this was something else that we talked about is that People think of plants as taking in the carbon dioxide, but that's just to store their food. So when they need food to grow and just do plant stuff, which we call homeostasis, you know, produce flowers, exist, live, bring water in, et cetera. Um, they usually do that at night. And when they do that, they use the oxygen just like we do and then give off carbon dioxide because they have to undergo what's called cellular respiration, which means basically, let's take down that food we stored during the day and break it into parts that we can use and rearrange to make sugars and proteins and whatever. And when we do that, we give off carbon dioxide as a waste product. So plants are self-sufficient. They don't necessarily need us for these processes. They don't need animals in general, unless you want to include pollinators. 
um, they they produce their own oxygen, they produce their own carbon dioxide. If they're in a closed system, they give off water and reabsorb water. So they're like totally self-sufficient. Um, and we go through all of this in the lesson plans. So gases come alive, tell teaches the, the students again about the major gaseous components of the air and how they're used by organisms. And we go into more detail about photosynthesis and respiration and digestion. Uh, where the gases come from, that we talk again about how CO2 is formed, what percentage of the air is CO2. And so the, the professor there uh, explains by using graphics exactly how small 0.04% of the atmosphere is, and yet it's such an incredibly important gas. Without it, life would not exist. And then we've got two videos on the magic molecule, which is water. So the first one talks about what water molecules are, what they're shaped like, what their properties are, basic chemistry. And then the other one talks about how the heat holding ability of water, which is called its heat capacity, is critical to spreading energy around the planet and is, is critical to the climate. So the real, the real greenhouse gas that affects climate is water vapor, which varies from anywhere from one to 2% of the atmosphere. Um, and it is, it is what all of the climate is based on, it's water vapor. So we go into detail about that as well. So the lesson plans and the activities. Um, I write them, all with the same format. So I start off with student learning standards and goals, and I'll go through and grab what I can from the next generation science standards. So I use that engine that I showed you. I put in whatever it is I'm trying to find. I pull out as many less goals that I can, student learning goals from there. And then I pull out lesson or goals just from the material in the book. So when the student has finished reading this book, you know, the student should be able to explain what photosynthesis is or, you know, tell me what carbon dioxide is or whatever. So that's separate from the next generation science standards. And then I have background information for the instructor because I wanted to include as much information as I could for people that aren't particularly comfortable with science. Um, given how it's been taught for the last few years, decades or so, it, that's not terribly surprising. Um, so I try to give them all of the background information that they need and without a whole lot of jargon so that they can understand the concepts. And then I do suggested activities. So our target audience for these books is anywhere from kindergarten on the very simplest level through eighth grade. So the kids in the eighth grade are expected to be able to do more and learn more than the kids in kindergarten. And so for that reason, I have this range of activities that they can go. So for the little kids, it could be you know, simple little experiments that they could do, um, or it could be demonstrations by the adults, depending on how complicated it is. And then we just add component complexity as we get up there to the point where we're in the eighth grade, we expect the eighth graders to do a whole lot more. So, you know, I'll give them suggestions on, let's set up an experiment. 
you know, what do you think happens to a plant? Here's a, here's a great one that I used to use in school. I found out very quickly that, that nobody really cares if plants die. They, they might be upset about ants or bugs or <laughs> anything else, but you kill a plant, nobody cares. So we would use plant experiments and it would be fertilizer. This was usually for my STEM kids. And I would say to them, I want you to answer a question that you don't know the answer to that you can't look up online. So it could be anything like, you know, comparing and compressing these two types of fertilizers or what happens if you add too much fertilizer or something, something that you can do in the class. So then they have to come up with the question they want answered. They have to come up with the, um, the design of their experiment. They have to come in with the materials and they have to perform the experiment and they have to collect the data and they have to give me an answer when they're done and they'd have to write a report and they were graded based on how well they evaluated the data and how good their their experimental design was, which they were guided for that, of course, uh, especially with the, the youngest one, the ninth graders. But they weren't graded on whether or not they got the right answer. They were graded on whether or not they got the right interpretation of their data. Um, so this is what we don't do in school anymore. Um, we, we say, this is what we want you to prove, now prove it. And uh, I would prefer that the kids learn it themselves. And that's the critical thinking that we just aren't teaching anymore. So that's the other extreme with the eighth graders. And then whoever is teaching it can decide, you know, if it's just your own child and you just want the child to explain it to you, that's fine. If you want the child to give you a written report, that's fine. PowerPoint presentation works great. You know, the educator gets to decide how they want the information presented. But at the end, the student has to go through and evaluate everything that they learned, explain what they did, evaluate what they learned, and then explain what they learned and how they came to that conclusion. Uh, and then at the very end, I had the formative and summative questions, which is edu speak for, uh, do you, how much of this stuff do you know before you learn the lesson, that's the formative. And then the summative is, okay, so how much did you actually learn after you had the lesson? And so to get a good gauge for what they've learned, you ask the same questions before and answer after. So that's why it's formative and summative. So you ask them the same question again, and then you can figure out what they learned, what they didn't learn, what you need to go back and reinforce, et cetera. So, Every single one of these is unique for every single one of the materials that I just showed you. And they're all free online, can be downloaded, and they're for anybody to use, whether or not you've got our our um our materials as well. You know, if they just want to go through and oh, I need some ideas for how to do this, that, and the other thing, you know, this this would be a reference. Free to everybody, no licensing, anything. Um, so that's what we've come up with, and that's what we're trying to do. The website, the CO2 Learning Center, also has a couple of other little tabs. One of them is Fun Facts, uh, where we have these little cards where they ask you a question on, a, or they tell you a fact on the front, and then they give you the flip side where it goes into more detail, and then gives you the source of the information. So the example I have up there is there are a lot more polar bears alive today than when your grandparents were young, and then you flip it over. And it tells you, you know, more information and sources for that. So we have 10 fun, 
10 fun facts for anybody who wants to look at it. And then we have a climate quiz, which we also have on the CO2 Coalition website, where we have 18 commonly held misconceptions, and then we ask questions about it. So here we go. Polar bear, polar bear populations are in decline. So if you read the fun fact, you already know the answer to this one, right? But if you didn't read the fun fact uh, and you give the wrong answer, then it flips over, reveal the answer, and will tell you what the answer is and explain um, why and then give you the source for the information as well. So these are all of our learning materials, and this has been our attempt to uh, make a minor dent in uh, the problems that we see with modern education, but not just all of it, all of it together. It's like specifically climate change education, where they start off with kindergartners thinking that CO2 is bad. Um, and then they just, they don't understand that it's, it's vital for life. So do you have any questions, Tom? I'm just uh, curious to hear more about your experience at that uh, NSTA convention. What was the ratio of people who thought you were doing a terrible thing and people who were supporting what you were doing? Oh, that is such a good question. Um, there were, most of the people were supportive. We had, I remember having one woman make the comment to me, oh my gosh, I wish that somehow you could get this information to the National Dairy Association because these climate change people are just killing us. Um, we had some people that said, you know, all oh, these lesson plans are absolutely perfect. Thank you so much. It saves them. The teacher is a tremendous amount of work because it puts me, takes me hours to put these things together. Uh, most of it, looking up the, re the uh, activities, that's the most labor-intensive part. And then uh, we did have a couple of people that came by with their, um, that were displeased, would say. I did have this one woman come up to me and she had just written a book on, you know, the horrors of climate change. And she came to me and she said, well, I just, I just wrote this book. And I said, well, you know, we have a publication too. And I handed her, the, you know, the one about how we're refuting the um, ST, NSC's position. And she looked at it and she said, oh, I can't talk to you. Like I'm the enemy, right? You know, so she quickly left the document, quickly turned away and, uh, and vanished. And then another thing that was interesting is that we were just right within vision of the booth that was set up by, I want to say it was either NASA or NOAA. Thinking maybe it was NOAA. And one of the, I guess it was the person that was, the table leaders, so to speak, came over and started talking to Greg, who was our, our, you know, our head dog. <laughs> and he said to Greg, well, I see I have a group of climate deniers here. And Greg said, well, you know, we've got some really good data to, to show that there's no thing as a climate emergency. And a lot of the data is from you guys. We get it from NOAA and NASA. <laughs> like, he really wasn't sure how to respond to that. Um, but, you know, we, we got a lot of mixed messages. There were teachers that came up to us and said, you know, I love this stuff, but I, there's no way I could use it in my classroom. Like, they won't let me. Uh, I'll get kicked out of school. Um, we need to learn this, but I can't use your materials. I'd like, it was just, it was pretty amazing. But again, this was the public school. Um, 
And then when the NSCA people came down, they they came down and talked to to Rafa. It was a board member, and you know she's intimately involved with this stuff. And so she had to call Greg down to come down and talk to them. And you know they they said you've got to stop handing out these materials. And Greg said, I'm not going to stop handing out these materials. <laughs> well, then you have to leave. So they had a little bit of a discussion. I mean, you know, there were no threats. There was no nastiness. Um, we just, you know, we had expected it, but we'd expected it sooner. Like we were surprised we got through a whole day and a half before they finally came down to tell us to go. And by that time, like I said, we'd handed out everything that we had. We only like, 3,000 of the, the one of the books, the, the first one, the, the Once Upon a Time thing, and then Simon went really quickly because everybody loves Simon. Simon's just a cute little cat story. Um, and then it was funny because we got written up by the Washington Post, I think it was, and their big complaint about our materials was that in the book, Simon, it didn't talk about the damages of climate change. <laughs> like, that's right. <laughs> no, it did not. Um, so that, I mean, that was the experience and the people that were working the facility were very nice. They brought over the car you know, they helped us load our cars. Um, there are a lot of them that said, you know, Hey, we're with you, but they can't say anything. So we got a lot of secret support. Do you have any plans over the next year to try to uh, make people more aware of what you're doing or more conferences to attend or? Oh, yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, now with the education committee. We're primarily sticking, like I said, with the homeschool conventions, and there are going to be dozens of those. They they usually hold them in the summertime. So that gives us a whole year to start planning, figure out where we want to go and what we want to do. Um, we've actually got a group going to a convention in Houston in November um, that's going to be sharing the, the learning materials and the the good news about <laughs> carbon dioxide. Uh, and um, so the answer is yes. And we do have other materials that we're working on. I don't know that I'm at liberty to say exactly what they are, but we have a, a longer length video that's coming out and Greg has an idea for another book series that we wanted to get started. So uh, yeah, we have, it's it's gotten to the point. And, and then as we do this, we get more and more support from the general public so that means we're busier and Greg has had to hire more people to do the job. Like he needs three Angelas right now, our marketing, marketing directory needs probably three Angelas. I think she's going to be lucky if she gets one. Um, but it, yeah, it's just, it's starting to snowball. So we're real excited about that. So am I correct in saying that if people want to uh, find out what you're doing, go to co2learningcenter.com? Is that the good place to start to find out what you're doing? That is a really good place to start. And there is a link on there that says contact us. And then you, you fill out information and you send it in. Um, if there are any educators that are watching this, we do offer free classroom sets for educators. You just have to, when you, when you say contact us, when you fill out the form, you have to give some information about where you teach and how many students you've got. And it doesn't matter whether it's public school, private school, homeschool, doesn't matter. Um, you just give us the information, and then we'll send you free classroom sets. Um, but if you're just an individual that wants to buy the books, then, then we can get them for you. You can buy them through Amazon. Um, and probably the link 
is the best one to use on the website because the, the first book title, especially Once Upon a Time, there's got to be hundreds, if not thousands of books that start off that way. If you try doing a search for that title, you're, you're going to be totally overwhelmed in a second. So you just go to our website, click the link. It'll take you right to the uh, Amazon page for that. Keep in mind, I, I am a product of public schools, sent my daughter to public school, worked at public schools. I'm pretty sure that if I had to deal with public schools now that I wouldn't, it would either be a private school or it would be through a homeschooling group. Um, a lot of homeschoolers work together as groups and sometimes they will hire people like if they, if they want to teach a high school subject, let's say they want somebody to come in and teach their child calculus, but they know nothing about calculus. There are people that they can hire to come in and teach calculus to their groups. So the only thing I guess that you don't have is the big, the big things that high schools offer, which are like the sports teams, the huge libraries, uh, the socialization, but there's a lot of problems with discipline in schools now. And there's a lot of problems with this indoctrination in schools now and not teaching reading and writing, which are what parents want them to learn, but other things that aren't necessarily appropriate. So I, I think I would probably stay away from public schools until they get their act together. Um, they're clearly failing our students. It clearly is, um, I mean, when you look at the reduction in the SAT scores and the ACT scores, they're not doing their job. And I guess the parents figured that out when they started looking at it post-COVID. And it's just gotten so much worse since then that I'm very sure I wouldn't send a kid to a, to a public school right now. I'm not sure that's what you want to hear, but that's kind of where I am with the whole I, education thing. Is it your sense that the endocrine indoctrination in public schools is way worse now than even 10 years ago? It sounds like it is. I don't remember. Okay. So when I was teaching, again, I'm a high school, so I'm only teaching chemistry and AP environmental science. Those were my only two subjects. I think I was called in for something else for one semester. But at our school, we were able to get people who specialized in a field to teach that subject. They would not pull me in to teach biology because I'd you know, you don't want me teaching biology at the level our school is teaching it. Um, and so if the only quote indoctrination that I got, and there, there really didn't seem to be any in chemistry, um, was just the climate change stuff when we got to climate change and AP environmental. So what I did was I taught the kids what they needed to know for the test. And then separately, I said, and this is why all of that stuff is nonsense. You know, I gave them a completely different presentation with all the stuff that I had learned um, that said it was wrong. Now, the, the interesting thing that I didn't say when I first started was that I, I was a, you know, a climate change person that originally, and I guess I got back into teaching in 2004, and at that time, I really, I didn't have any questions that, you know, this is real and you've got animals migrating, you have all this evidence that the climate is warming and this, that, and the other thing. And my brother, who was also a scientist said, oh, wait a minute, this is, this is all nonsense. <laughs> I said, okay, show me your evidence. 
So he starts piling on the evidence with the, with the very first one that made the biggest impression on me. And, and this is a graph from, and I didn't include it because it, it's not really part of the, you know, what we were discussing, but it's from a website that's called climate, the number four, you.com, um, you know, with Professor Christie out of the University of Huntsville, Alabama. And um, he, I guess it's University of Alabama in Huntsville. Sorry, I'm a dog's fan. I don't keep up with that stuff. Um, <laughs> but the graph that he showed me was here is the rise in carbon dioxide going like this. And here's the temperature. And it's like up and down and up and down. It's light, you know, it's like there's supposed to be, if there's supposed to be a direct correlation, show it to me. Well, clearly there wasn't. Um, that was the first thing. Then there was a bunch of other stuff he showed me. And then he had me read a book that's out of print that is called The Deniers by Lawrence Solomon, I believe. And he did a, a whole book on the original cancel culture, where he took all of these people who were legitimate scientists who were accepted as authorities in their field. He didn't mention Judith Curry, but he could have included her in his book. She's like the quintessential person with a cancel culture. It's like, as soon as they could start coming out and saying, well, you know, there really isn't an increase in the number of hurricanes. We haven't been able to see that. And there really isn't an increase in the number of tornadoes. And, you know, the sea level has been rising at the, at the same rate it's been for ever since we've been taking measures with satellites. And, you know, they come out and, and they'll introduce it to the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and they'll come out with their report and say just the complete opposite. So you had the head of the National Hurricane Center saying there's no increase in hurricanes. And then the policy comes out and says, oh, there's been this tenfold increase in hurricanes. You know, it's like, and you read this in this book. And then all of these people that get kicked out of their jobs and they can't publish anymore. And then after that, we had Climate Gate. And it's like, this is clearly, clearly a big hoax. Um, and so I have my ideas and I will keep private as to what the motivation is. But I don't think there's any question that there is no catastrophic warming of the planet. If anything, the warming has been good. I don't know anybody who moves to Alaska to get away from the bad weather. Um, you know, they're all going to Florida or the South because you don't have to dig out from under three or four feet of snow every winter. Um, nobody moves on purpose. Okay, most people will move to warmer climates than colder climates when they retire. Not all, most. So warmth has got to be a good thing, right? And then as a geologist, of course, when we studied Earth's history, it goes up and down and up and down and up and down, right? And then you had the tropical Earth and you had the snowball Earth and it's like back and forth and back and forth. So no, we weren't causing any of that. I still think it's pretty audacious for people to think that they can actually get and control something going on in Mother Nature. Like, I don't know how you control that that if we can control pollution, we can stop tearing out, I don't know, forests to put in solar panels or, the, I mean, there's all kinds of things we are directly involved in. And I'm, you know, an original tree-hugging environmentalist, but I don't see that they're doing the environment any good. 
with all of these policies that they're promoting and all of these changes that they're doing and the mining and on and on and on. I don't see I don't see how you're doing the environment any good with any of these policies. And there's just so little evidence to indicate that removing carbon dioxide is, is going to change anything that, you know, I guess I'm a denier, but it took me a while. Okay. Uh, anything else for now? No, I think I'm good. <laughs> okay. So yeah, Sharon Camp, thank you very much. I'm a big fan of what you're doing here. I enjoyed uh, seeing the details of what you're doing to fight back against the brainwashing of kids. I think it's a, it's a very important work you're doing. So thank you. Well, thank you for spreading the word, Tom. I really, really appreciate that. Again, co2learningcenter.com. All right. Sounds great. Talk to you next time, Sharon Camp. Thanks. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye.